0: This month's Where Did the Road Go is brought to you by eight amazing people: Greg Ross, Beluminati, Allison Cook, Super Inframan, Thirty Six Dingo, Michael Fritschke, Yvonne Williams, and Doug Malam. Thank you all so very much for helping make this show possible.
1: Transmission start. Welcome to Where Did the Road Go. Join us as we wander off the path and explore lost history, consciousness. The paranormal, unexplained mysteries, alternative thought, and much more. We are present on the web at wheretidtheroadgo.com. Now here is your host, Saraya.
0: Welcome to this edition of Where Did the Road Go? And tonight I am joined by Super Saxon Man. <laughs> hello, hello. And Christopher Ernst. Hey, everybody. And tonight, uh, we are going to talk about a book I've been reading. Um, and I have to thank um, Michael Frisch- Frischke. I think it's Frischke. Frischke. I'm, I'm sure I'm massacring that. I'm sorry, Michael. Um, he went on my Amazon wish list and sent <laughs> me this book, which I've been wanting to read forever. Um, and it's called God Star. And the author is Duardu Cardona. Now, unfortunately, Duardu had passed away back in like 2016 or so. So I couldn't have Duardu on. But uh, initially, when I first put this book on the list, I think it wasn't even available. And then when it was available, it was like $500 or something ridiculous. Now it seems, I think the last time I checked on Amazon, it, it there might even be a Kindle version now. So if people want to check it out, I can look it up real quick. But um, what it
2: is... you can all You can find it if people do want to find it. I think it's on archive.org, a PDF of it.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Let's see. And if you want the actual book, it's 50 bucks now. Yeah, right which is a lot better Ugh. than it was. And that's, that's sure. on Amazon. So if you go to Abe's books or something like that, you might find it yeah. cheaper. And his other books are like 34, 50, yes um, 4 I can't really speak to the other ones because I haven't read them yet. I'm not done with this one. I'm, it's, uh, it's a lengthy book. It's about 500 pages. And it's a, a very large book. So it's not like, it, it's larger than your average book, like size-wise, width, height-wise. Uh, with fairly wow. small types, so there's a lot of information here. And uh, from the back, it says, uh, "If controversial subjects are not your cup of tea, read no further, and put this book down right now because this work has what this work has to offer is revolutionary in the extreme." God Star sets out to show that the sky which ancient man remembers was entirely different from the one that now stretches above us. And so, this is basically delving- right. This is this
2: a, a, a Saturn was yes. A- Saturn was a sun. Yeah.
0: And now I had, uh, when I had, um, oh man, his his name, I had his name until a second until I went to say it um, from the Electric Universe, um, Wal Thornhill. When Wal was on, I think the second time I had him discuss the Saturn hypothesis and I've always had a lot of Like, yeah, I don't know. This sounds really out there. Um, And he wasn't really, I mean, it was a podcast. He's not sitting here giving me raw data where all this information came from. He just outlined the theory. This book goes into great detail to show you why they think this may have been the case. The first part, which is mostly what we're going to deal with tonight, is the idea that Saturn was once uh, much brighter in the sky and yeah. uh, then it gets into what well, the section I just started reading is where he's talking about the potential evidence that that uh, we actually orbited Saturn at one point
3: yeah. Oh okay
0: yeah, awesome. so yeah this this goes back you know we're, we're, we're talking you know 12,000 I think I think he puts it around you know like like part of this was the end of the last ice age when everything changed. Um, but yeah, well, yeah. uh, I, what I did is I took some, some important like clips out of the book and we'll read them and talk about them. Yeah. Um, and like I said, I would have loved to have him on to talk about it, but that is not going to happen unless one of you can channel him.
3: <laughs> I wish. So, I, I don't think I could do him justice. <laughs> uh, my filter would get in the way too much. <laughs>
0: So, um, yeah, like I said, the book's called God Star, and um, the early part of the book, he talks he, he spends a lot of time talking about how accurate ancient astronomy was, and particularly like Babylonian astronomy. But like most ancient cultures had a very strong astronomical level of knowledge. Some of it we're only catching up with now, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. Um, so he, he, he says, you know, okay, so here's how they treated Saturn. Um, and everything else was accurate. Why would they be wrong about Saturn? And he also makes, you know, shows comparatively that a lot of the same gods in different religions also relate sun to Saturn. So Mm -hmm. the first clip I have here says, what should also be noted here is that the rites of Dionysus so closely resembled those of the Egyptian god Osiris that, Herodotus, is it Herodotus or Herodotus? Herodotus. Herodotus, I was completely wrong, thought it impossible for the Greek rites to have risen independently of the Egyptian ones, and therefore supposed that the Greeks must have borrowed their rites from the Egyptians and, with slight alterations, passed them off as their own. Incidentally, also Plutarch, who insisted upon the detailed resemblances between the rites of Osiris and uh, those of Dionysus, which, if nothing else, also indicates the comparative mythology is not itself a modern tool, as some critics have maintained. Um, In this instance, as in many others, however, no borrowing need be called for. What is at the bottom here is that whatever it was that Dionysus had originally stood for was the very same thing that the Egyptian god Osiris had originally represented. Or to put it in a simpler way, Osiris and Dionysus representations of the same original phenomena and they were simply one and the same god under different national guise. Um, I'm not sure yeah. why I picked that. I think that was just sort of an example. I've heard that. I've
2: heard that before. I mean, that's not the first time that I've heard that, and I'd be loath to remember the source at this point. But yeah.
0: But he's showing that a lot of these things are very similar across culture, and they either borrowed or they didn't. And uh, I, I thought the uh, comparative and mythology thing was interesting because I didn't realize that there are critics who say that comparative mythology is just a modern tool.
2: Yep yeah well i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of pushback against uh you know or there which i think comes from you know understandably from like like as a result of colonialism that you know uh there isn't some like it's that whole thing about you know there isn't some white race that started everything or the idea that you know uh it's somehow bad if there is like a singular or a shared common source, uh, amongst cultures that like that diminishes the, uh, I don't know, the authenticity or the worth of each culture, which, you know, I guess from my standpoint, I always think of it as, well, maybe all these cultures, uh, and we've said this before, maybe they are, you know, tapping into a universal truth rather than it being, you know, uh, the other way around. But, most people don't like to think that way.
0: <laughs> right. Because that implies that there's a layer of knowledge out there that's shared by all of us that we exactly. can't consciously perceive.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, if we, you know, think that, uh, all these ideas spread around and got traded between peoples and things like that, like, That seems very natural to me. And uh, I I don't like when that conversation gets shut down because it's perceived as, yeah, there was uh, a group of white people going around being the white savior civilization and bringing everybody up. Like, I, I don't think that's necessary to have right you know uh multiple cultures arriving at the same conclusions we have ideas uh, i mean gosh the laser was patented uh, within like a day of someone else trying to file a patent on the laser right in another part of i mean it, well, so these these things happen yeah. you know i mean you it gotta think of it, spontaneously yeah. in multiple places
2: yeah i feel like you have to think of it like like cuisine you know like there's like a cuisine comes about like a particular f eth- you know or uh, you know, cultural, ethnic, cause cuisine comes about because of different influences from different places. And then it creates its own thing, which is still food, you know, but it just, it has its own uh, flavor to it. And, right. um, yeah, anyway, beating a dead horse here, at least amongst our, our conversations, <laughs> I think we all take this for granted.
0: <laughs> true. True. Um, okay. So the next bit I, I copied out of here was, uh, What emerged from this study is that the epic is conclusively indigenous to those territories which had, at one time or another, been occupied by the Goths. This conclusion uh, received confirmation through the archaeological discoveries of the countries involved, Yugoslavia, Austria, Greece, and Asia Minor. Poland, Russia, Sweden, Denmark, England, Germany, France, Spain, and to an extent even Morocco and Tunisia. Just as important was Lotz meeting with the folklore-telling communities that still exist in some of these countries. Their rendition of the Guderan songs and or tales was found to be absolutely trustworthy when compared to the epic as it had been immortalized in writing in 1233, even though the recitals were anything but verbatim depictions of it. In the meantime, the recitals themselves were always repeated in exactly the same way. This was so true that on one occasion, when a particular storyteller deliberately and mischievously changed a line, there was a drastic interruption even from the toddlers who immediately sought to correct the narrators. So what what he's getting at here, he's he's talking about oral tradition and how important it is and how accurate it is. Right. Yeah, Um, it is. Yeah. One telling conclusion among others that can be drawn from this study is that despite a passage of more than 400 years, which supposedly separate Homer from the events he narrated, the Gudrun, Gudrun, G-U-D-R-U-N, Gudrun epic has retained geographical, historical, and archaeological accuracy with a consistency that can only be attributed to a faithful persistence in the original. In its turn, this faithfulness can only be the result of having a honed memory through learning by rote and perhaps to give perry his due by formula. So one of the arguments against some of these theories and some of these ideas is that, you know, oh well it's just oral tradition and it can't be relied upon. And what he's looking at is how accurate right. the oral tradition really tends to be. Yes.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It is. Yep.
0: Yeah. Um and then he says most ingenious toth one man I don't know why it it says that, and this is dot, dot, dot. One man has the ability to begat arts, but the ability to judge of their usefulness or harmfulness belongs to another. A not, and now you, who are the father of letters, have been led by your affection to ascribe them to a power the opposite of that which they really possess. For this Mm. invention will produce forgetfulness in the minds of those who learn to use it, because they will not practice their memory. Their trust in writing will discourage the use of their own memory. You have invented an elixir not of memory, but of reminding. And if you offer your pupils the appearance of wisdom, not true wisdom— for they will read many things without instruction and will therefore seem to know many things when they are for the most part ignorant. Mm. So basically he's saying the introduction of writing has actually affected how well we can remember things.
3: That makes perfect sense.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's not the first time I've heard that too. That's, yeah. I mean, I think there's some definitely some efficacy to that.
0: And you can just read something in a book and repeat it without really understanding it. you like, you can memorize it. Right. Um, right. And not necessarily know which parts are the important parts. Whereas with the oral yeah. tradition, as they said, you know, the, the story may vary a little bit, but the data is still there. Yeah. And a lot of that yep. data, for whatever reason, is astronomical. Yeah, because you find a lot of the uh, the precession of the equinox numbers and stuff like that coming in these ancient tales. Right. So, and it's not like you can just st- go outside every night and figure out the the number astronomical numbers for the the procession of the equinox. Yeah. You know, that's advanced astronomy. That's that's like a century's worth of observations or so. Very careful observations. A very slow movement of stars. Right. All right. Um. Let's see the next thing he gets into, um okay, so this is where he's talking about there's a oh I also wanted to get at this uh the idea of he's talking about obviously writing moving away from uh storytelling, but also now with the internet, I would feel like that's gotten worse because mm-hmm. now you don't just have books, you can just mm-hmm. ask your device for the information you need
3: right, um, oh, absolutely I mean I uh, Chris are you about to, am I stepping on you man? go ahead? No, 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 go for it, okay. Yeah. I mean, I I just think about like the massive amounts that I read now and uh, the minuscule amount I retain. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I I devour stuff. But, you know, if if it's not printed in my hand, it really does not stay in my mind. And this may be a generational thing. You know, people that are going through college right now in high school may not have that retention problem. But you know, I don't feel compelled to memorize things anyway, because I know I can just look at my phone. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I also kind of wonder about the relationship with the text changing and it also just being less permanent for you. Um, mm. And even talking about the changes in memory, like think about when people used memory palaces to remember everything and even yeah. books were hard to come by. And it was like being handed you know, a very nice computer. Like you know, it was something that was expensive and valuable, and you only had it for a short time, so you knew to absorb it.
0: What was the memory uh, palace thing? I, I, the name rings a bell, but I'm not remembering it. Which one? Sorry, I'm the sorry. memory palace.
3: Oh, the memory palace. So, the memory palace was. You know, it became big in the Renaissance, to my knowledge. But it would be something where you would create in your head uh, a room or a palace and you would remember the layout and you would place things within that layout that reminded you of uh, different things that you had learned. And so it was like sort of creating a a building in your mind that gave you references for all of the things that you had wanted to remember. Okay. Yeah. Um, you see it referenced a lot. I don't hear many people talk about actually using that as a strategy anymore, so I don't know how viable it is, but it, it's a fascinating concept anyway.
2: Yeah. I think it, it, to some degree, it's also associated with like, uh, memory or photographic memory too, mm.
4: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: which is still something I haven't dug too deep into, but I, I want to get into that at some point. Understanding what the difference between that and, and regular, you know, the way normal people remember is, and also how accurate eidetic memory really is. Sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a yeah. book I, I also got uh, that um, Michael was nice enough to I pick up for me as well, uh, that actually got referenced in this book when they're talking about the way this stuff works uh that talks about the modern like rise of emojis and stuff returning more to symbols. Sure. Oh yeah. As opposed to, you know, and and the the idea that like the goddess is connected to the more symbolic part versus the part of us that reads. And so you get a reemergence of the goddess Mm -hmm. the more we we function on that symbolic sort of level which is an interesting idea i haven't read the book so i don't i can't really say too much about it just like the idea itself was very interesting
3: yeah 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 yeah. Um, it sounds awesome i i think there's a lot to be said for kind of being able to communicate in a way that's uh fuzzy you know uh, basically being like it's not as strict but you know we're also able to understand when something is not as defined as an exact sentence when you get emojis sent to you and things like that it It allows that sort of like, not nebulous. It's the wrong word, but you know, you know what I'm trying to get at here. Yeah, sure.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, I think the written word is is it's really good. The way that language, you know, has progressed, you know, in tandem with mathematics. You can think about mathematics as an alternate way of thinking about it too. But you know, uh, uh, writing is very good for you know text as we have it now for expressing things that are, you know, that are scientific and mathematical and very material, and that's great. And that really has led to a lot of very interesting things that we have, but it's that whole, you know, uh, Gary Luckman lost knowledge of the imagination thing of like, have we lost these other ways of knowing in our focus solely on this one way of knowing you know, yeah. uh, as much as it has gained for us, what have we lost?
0: And so, up up to this part in the book, he's he's basically making the argument that these ancient cultures, a were astron- you know, astronomically accurate, uh, and that the oral legends that the they're also going to be drawing from do tend to be very accurate and stay accurate over lengths of time, which is something that some people will argue, like I said, that that you know, oral oral tales are not you can't rely on them because they don't stay the same, but they seem to actually stay the same.
2: Right, right. Yeah, very much.
0: So now he, he gets into color here, uh, when it comes to the color of the sun, and he says when pictured on the walls of temples and on pap papyri papyri? That's not right. papai papyri. Yes. Papyri? Really? <laughs> uh Ra is often shown surmounted with a red or golden disc, which is not inappropriate if the sun is truly being represented. In liturgies dedicated to him, however, Ra is described as having shed a green rather than a golden light. Thus, a hymn to Ra states, that thou hast come with thy splendors, and thou hast made heaven and earth bright with thy rays of pure emerald light. In another hymn, we read, O Ra, the heir of eternity, self-begotten and self-born, king of earth, prince of the netherworld. Thou dost rise in the horizon of heaven, and sheddest upon the world beams of emerald light. Not only did this sun shed a green or emerald light, it itself was green. As Donald Mackenzie informed his readers, in his form of Sebek Ra, this sun was the radiant green disk, and hail green one was the matter in which Ra was lauded. Mythologists have nothing to say by way of explaining why the ancient Egyptians alluded to the sun as having been green and shedding a green light. As long as they continue to believe that Ra was the sun, how can they? Does our sun shed a green light? Is the disk of the present sun green? Uh, Consider further the motions of the celestial object called Ra. In a statement found in one of the coffin texts, the deity is addressed with these words. You shall go up upon the great west side of the sky, and go down upon the great east side of the earth. Is this not contrary to what the present sun does? Does the sun today go up in the west? Does it go down in the east? Thus Faulkner, who translated the passage, could not help by stating that this unexpected reversal of the points of the compass is incomprehensible. Yeah, and Egypt, I believe, is not the only culture that speaks of the sun rising in the in the west at one point in the distant past. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um. When I had on, oh, what's his name? I like that my brain betrays me when I need names. <laughs> um, you need a
3: memory palace for that.
0: Yeah. Right. It it doesn't yeah, right. work. I've go. tried. Um. Is a he's the 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 guy who was talking about uh, the um. All the Egyptian stuff, that doesn't narrow it down at all. Um, oh, John Anthony West? No, 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 no. Uh, no. Lesser known. Still around. Still with us. Um, he was talking about, the last book he was talking about was the sinker chamber inside the um, in, inside the Great Pyramid. And one of the things he shows is that a lot of the ancient texts before a certain time show the sun rising in the west. Crutton? No. Yes. Yes. Uh, not yeah, no, not okay. Crutton. It's uh oh man, I think I do think that uh, Crutton does talk about this as well. Um, but in this case, they're talking about the actual sun. They're not suggesting okay. that the sun was yeah. a different sun. Right. I, I
2: have heard sense. something similar to this too. It it, it it was more very like cursory mention of it, but in some of the stuff uh, about like the the Saturn Black Cube cult. Um, you know, they're very, it overlaps, uh, which is essentially like, you know, looking at there being this sort of lost cult of Saturnine worship, um, mm. that is like uh, for like the, the, the distant or alien or lost son,
0: Scott Crichton, oh, Scott Crichton. I did not know that name. Oh yeah. He's been on a few times. I highly recommend his episodes. Oh. His books are excellent. I've probably listened to it, but I don't remember the name. That's too bad. Huh? Hmm. And I like the guy he's pretty cool yeah um, yeah but yeah he talks about because uh, his theory about what's in the Great Pyramid, in that chamber that they found is that it is the uh, the remains of the previous um, rulers oh, that they were being I preserved for a disaster that was coming hmm. and
3: oh interesting
0: all the ancient tombs that have been found with these uh where these people were supposed to be late have been found empty every right. single one of them. So, mm-hmm. he, he's like, well, they might be empty because they're actually in the Great Pyramid. Yeah. So, if we ever get into that chamber, he, he may be, you know, we may find out if he's right or not. I say may because who knows if they'll tell us if they ever get into it.
3: Oh, right? my gosh. Yeah.
0: They do seem to have their own uh, agenda there, unfortunately. All right. So, that was, the, that was that. Okay. So, then he says, does this mean that humanity was once upon a time... Reduced to a little group of individuals who later spread over the earth, bringing with them their legends, which they altered through the centuries in accordance with the new climates and new habits. Or, as seems more probable, are all these legends a confused account of great events on a planetary scale, which were beheld in terror simultaneously by men scattered everywhere over the world. So that is that is sort of the disaster idea like is it that we had a sort of group of and it might be a little of both too mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because some of these these people may have survived uh, and did try to you know the, the the idea of civilizers like Quetzalcoatl and stuff like that um, or it could be that they I mean when you look at the like the Rango Rango script and Easter Island and some of the the Sanskrit stuff they're all showing plasma outbursts right so these symbols that that archaeologists have puzzled over for years suddenly you know when uh, the the one plasma scientist looked at them went oh yeah these are all the plasma formations you'll see the only ones that aren't here are the ones that would have killed you oh wow interesting so i mean that's a commonality you see and it doesn't mean that it was you know brought down from one group of people it's probably something that was seen all over the world during some massive disaster now what that disaster is is what we don't know. I mean, Robert Schock will say it was a massive solar outburst that caused it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he also talks about uh, this, uh, just one line where he says, witches on brooms may have been comets, <laughs> uh, which is entirely possible. I mean, they see that and they think it's a witch. So um, then he says, This I intend to show has been a great pitfall. Most mythologists who cannot reconcile the heaven alluded to by our ancient forefathers with the one that now stretches above and around us. As yet, as I hope to demonstrate, it was very opposite to what Sir believed lay at the foundation of mytho-astronomical belief. In fact, what I wish to stress is that the astronomical bodies of the solar system were defined by ancient man the world over, not because they consistently followed an ordained pattern, but precisely because they did not. Um, Indeed, many hypotheses are arrived at intuitively through a flash of insight, and may be maintained in the mind of the investigator in spite of much initial contrary evidence, and later be vindicated. But a legitimate researcher will not consciously suppress contrary evidence. Certainly he will not publish satisfied himself that all available evidence in a hypothesis until he has an accord with it. Indeed, if he is properly conscientious, he will search for contrary evidence to test the validity of his ideas." hypotheses may precede evidence in time, but not in importance. And that was a quote from David Levison. Um, Hmm. These are guidelines that will be kept in mind as we attempt to unravel the lost history of our solar system in the pages. But even so, the question must be asked, what constitutes evidence? As Daniel, oh man, I'm not even going to try and say this guy's last name noted, the very nature of evidence changes from one discipline of science to another. What is evidentiary to one person is excluded by another. Facts are not the same for everyone. Since we cannot all agree as to what constitute facts, deductive arguments alone can never be fully convincing. There is another approach, however, for assessing what might be considered dubious by some. That recourse is inductive reasoning. Let it be recognized that no fact stands alone, but as part of a whole constellation of other facts. At some point, when enough facts have been collected, each individual point of light may be seen as part of a newly recognizable figure, an organic whole. Eventually, the sheer weight of even dubious facts becomes too large to ignore. Mm. Um, Despite the Babylonians being incredible astronomers, they claimed Saturn was the brightest star in the sky, which means they were either wrong on this one point or something was different. Uh, Besides, as Ball pointed out, and we have seen, the association of Saturn with the Sun uh, was too widespread to be attributed to a Greek confusion based on Philo. Bol's own conclusion was that the naming of the planet Saturn as Helios was not due to any confusion of names and hardly a confusion of the luminaries involved, but owed its cause to the simple fact that originally Helios and Kronos were one and the same god, and therefore the same planet, that is Saturn. Hmm. Um, Ambrosius, oh man, hmm. these names. The Roman philosopher... <laughs> And Grammarian, who lived between 395 and 423 AD, uh, has been much maligned for claiming in the first book of his Saturnalia that all forms of worship derive from that of the sun. Among the misconceptions that are laid at his door are the identification of Kronos as the sun. But having learned that we have now, can we honestly say that Uh, he was that much in error. Was he not in his own way reporting what his ancestors and those of the Greeks before them had believed that Saturn born or the name of the sun? Should we fault him for believing that this sun was the same sun that shone daily above his head? Have we not now seen that most modern mythologists have been trapped into committing the same error? Mm. So he goes through a large portion of this book showing you where Saturn and various names for the sun are interchangeable. Oh, this is really
3: fascinating. I'm, I'm, I keep going back to like thinking about if the sun was rising in a different part of the sky, does that mean the earth was rotating the other direction? And (laughs) I don't know. I was like, you know, like there's a lot happening here.
0: There's a lot happening and it looks, and if nothing else, I I think there's, there's stuff that has yet to be addressed really by science. They've just kind of swept it under the rug. And have dismissed it as well, those people just didn't know what they were talking about or whatever. And I'm pretty sure I kept in kept the the quote in here, but there's a point where uh someone corrects their translation um because the description the person that they're giving in the text describes Saturn, but they're calling it the sun. So they're like, well, they must have meant Saturn, and they they changed the text. I see.
2: So (laughs) what is it so what is it saying? Like, how did the sun come into play then? We'll get there.
0: We'll get there. Okay.
2: All right. (laughs) I'm jumping too far ahead. Sorry, guys.
0: The problem problem is that we don't have a ton of hard data. We have a lot of suggestive stuff that doesn't actually make sense based on our current paradigm. Right. Um, so and I'm wondering
2: is, if this is going to go in like a Velikovsky direction. This I guy think. does not like Velikovsky.
3: Oh,
0: interesting. Oh, really? Okay. Yes.
3: Like the whole time I was like, all of this reminds me of Velikovsky. Yep.
0: <laughs> yep. But he, he will go on and on about how off Velikovsky was on most of his stuff. Every, every oh, wow. here, here and there, he'll be like Velikovsky did get this right. You know? Oh gosh. Interesting. So yeah, not a fan. He was not a fan of Velikovsky. Um, okay, so he says, would it be then uh, too much c- to consider what appears to be the only other alternative, that what the ancients believed, or indeed what they or their ancestors a- had actually seen and experienced? Before we answer that question, let us consider one additional point. The ancients did not merely maintain that Saturn was or had been a sun, they alluded to it as if it was or once had been general knowledge, that everyone knew that this was or had been the case. No explanations, clarifications, or qualified realizations are ever encountered to account for the phenomena. But, whether speaking of the Saturnian god as distinct from his luminary, or the luminary that was Saturn itself, it is always accepted that the deity and planet, which in reality were one, uh, or had once Coruscated as a true sun. Personally, this was one aspect concerning the Saturnian phenomena, which further convinced me that not only did the ancients mean exactly what they said, but that they probably knew what they were talking about. But what exactly did this amount to? At this point, we had best lay the cards on the table. Um, we have, I believe, supplied ample evidence, and there is a lot of evidence in this book. He, he this is Like I said, this is a thick book and more will be forthcoming, yeah. to indicate that the ancients believed Saturn to have once radiated as a sun. As Hotter Westop and Stenelod Wake had concluded long before Jostrow, these are all people he talks about in the book, on studying ancient symbolism, as far as the ancients were concerned, Saturn was the first irradiator of light. But a question we posed earlier remains unanswered. This concerns the sharing of names between Saturn and the sun. But then, what is true that Saturn was given the former name of the Sun, or the Sun was given the former name of Saturn. Ball seems to have had no doubts about this. As far as he was concerned, the Greek Helios and the Latin Sol were originally the names of the planet Saturn. Here I would like to mention the cult of Sol Invictus, the unconquered Sun, which did not gain significant ascendancy right. until the 3rd century AD. Both the cult and the festivals associated with established by the Emperor Aurelian, um, and celebrated on the 25th of September. What to the Western world today is Christmas, as Roger Westcott asked. Why would the sun have been deemed unconquered? The common assumption about this theonic phrase, wrote Westcott, is that it could be loosely equated with the invincible sun. Westcott, however, was inclined to take the term literally, in which case the question could be asked was there also a cult of Sol Victus, the conquered sun? As Westcott concluded, although the latter phrase, soul victus, does not occur in the Roman literature, the phrase soul indigities is found referring to an older sudden god. Oh, that's interesting. Yes. Everything in this book is interesting, to be totally honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like yeah. trying to digest some of this stuff. And uh, like I said, he is very thorough. I'm not saying he's right, but he's asking really good mm. questions. <sighs> yeah. 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 And uh, it's much it's much different seeing him lay it out step by step and showing you these correspondences and how these ancient cultures looked at this stuff uh, over and over again. Even if it seems a little redundant, he's trying to make his point versus just having someone tell you the theory, which is like, oh, yeah, Saturn right. was watched the sun. It's like, well, that's how would that happen? You know? Right.
3: Right. It's like, okay, whatever. You don't value it.
0: Yeah. It's like, that sounds like a cool idea, but I think I would need to, to see something.
3: Uh, Yes, exactly. Yeah.
0: So, okay. So it just jumps to uh, a guy named Flamsteed was shrewd enough to notice to assume that the theorists are baffled is to underestimate them badly. A good astronomical theorist never lets the complete absence of information stand in the way of a nice theory and conversely never gets thrown when an actual observation arrives to spoil it. Lack of data can actually be an advantage unhindered by facts some theorist is bound to have come up with a model that explains even the strangest discovery. In their attempt to explain the anomalous behavior of our extrasolar planets that everyone started discovering all over the place, it has been conjectured that there was enough material in these systems to make planets ten times bigger than Earth. Objects of such size, it has been theorized, would be in possession of such gravitational fields powerful enough to act like a giant vacuum cleaner. Some objects tend to suck in whatever gas is left over, and the result, in a mere 10,000 years or so, you have Jupiter, a rocky core planet, 10 times the size of Earth, surrounded by an immense atmosphere 35,000 miles thick. Apart from Jupiter-sized planets, this hypothesis was later applied to both Jupiter and Saturn themselves, all of which might make one ask, if a Jupiter-sized planet can form in an extrasolar system in 10,000 years or so, How can anyone be positively certain that Jupiter itself, or for that matter Saturn, did not take a similarly short time to form? And if that is allowed as a possibility, then how can one be positively certain that Jupiter and Saturn are billions of years old? Even more was yet to come. After having been so sure that they knew just about everything they needed to know about Jupiter, astronomers were in for yet more surprises when comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 impacted the planet in July of 1994. In analyzing the aftermath of the impact, they discovered that the planet has far less water than had been expected. The three predicted layers of atmosphere were not detached. Strong winds were to be found present at all levels of the atmosphere, and the amount of helium turned out to be only half of what they had theorized. Huh. And I mean that was that was a big deal when that went down. And I think the fact that it exploded like it did also was was a uh, yeah. a surprise. Surprise too.
2: And mm. uh, I didn't really know much about that.
0: Huh. And we're very lucky it hit Jupiter, not us. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, that was
3: wild to watch. Yeah,
0: it really was. Uh, when all said and done, the only other alternative left to explain the Dogon and elf pig, uh, when all, <sighs> this is when all ledge of Saturn's ring structure and its satellites, hmm, I'm not sure, that, that did not Copyright. Basically, I'm using I'm using Google uh, Lens to just take a picture of the page and translate text, rather than using a ton of bookmarks and trying to figure out what I was uh, doing. But every once in a while, it gets it wrong. Okay, so it says uh, when all is said and done, the only other alternative to explain the Dogon and effie Pygmy knowledge of Saturn's ring structure and its satellites that their ancestors had in a far off time uh, is that they have been able to view the planet at closer proximity which would mean that somehow Earth had to be much closer to Saturn than it is at present. As outlandish as this idea may Mm. appear, there seems to be no other resolution to the problem, which brings to mind the oft-repeated words of author Conan Doyle, when you think you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, has to be the truth. Besides, as forthcoming chapters will indicate, everything else in our ancient forebathers had to say about this planet continues to strengthen the supposition. So apparently, the Dogon also talked about Saturn and its rings. Yeah, I think I knew that. Yeah, <clears throat>
3: yeah, I'm familiar with that. I'm I'm trying to. I'm so curious of the timeline of all this because. Is the implication that Saturn is a sun, but the rings were around it at the same time? Like that would be something. I don't know. I'm I'm just like this is this is a lot to digest. I'm kind of loving it.
0: <laughs> so what I think the theory goes, if I remember from Walt Thornhill talking about it, we were we were in uh, some kind of orbit around Saturn. There, there's argument to what kind, and um, from there we moved into the like we we kind of collided with the current solar system. Oh,
3: I see. Okay.
0: And energy got transferred. So this this is where the electric universe stuff comes in. The energy from Saturn got transferred to the sun because it was a a higher conductor.
3: Right. Okay. Okay. And
0: and thus Saturn kind of fell into the current orbit. It's in slowly and got dimmer and stopped being a sun. But this implies that the, the EU idea of, you know, uh, this, like, electrical current moving through the energy and moving to higher, uh, you know, certain areas as higher. Like, our sun, it was a stronger conductor than Saturn was, so it moved to, the energy moved to the sun, and Saturn, you know, kind of died out, sort of. I see. Oh. Uh, let's see. Uh, names for Saturn equate with both the sun and the fact that it doesn't move in the sky. This is, uh, so this is where he's getting into what it would have been like when Saturn was at its peak. Uh, The Egyptian explicitness. When it comes to Egypt, there is no longer any ambiguity concerning the Saturnian characteristic we have been investigating. In a hymn to Ra, the deity is addressed with these words, O thou firstborn who dost lie without movement. Here, once again, it remains for Egyptologists to explain why, if Ra was truly the sun, it was described as lying without movement. Ra, it was said, rests on his high place. Atum was said to have been immobile, called the firm heart of the sky. It was distinctly said of him that the great god lives fixed in the middle of the sky. In the papyrus of Ani, the deceased is addressed with these words, O thou will who art without motion, like unto Osiris, and this phrase is twice repeated. The immobility of Osiris is mentioned in the text of Teta. Thou art stable in thy name of Menu. Uh, It is there stated, while where menu itself has the meaning of stable one, the very same epithet we have found attached to other Saturnian deities. The Egyptian god, I think it's just Ta, P-T-A-H, whom we have also seen being identified as the personification of Saturn, was also syncretized with Tenen, or Tatenen, a primeval deity who was also lauded as the disk of heaven a definite identification of the god as a celestial body. Here, Wallace Budge informs us that the exact attributes of this deity appear to have been unknown even to the Egyptians. And yet, he has no difficulty in deriving the god's name from the word Enen, or Nen, which means inertness, inactivity, rest, motionless, and the like. Despite Budge, what this really tells us is that Tenen was considered to be without motion. If this god can truly be equated with Saturn— As his assimilation with Ta forces us to conclude, it would again register the planet in question as as having been immobile. So what it's saying really is that when Saturn was our sun, it sat motionless in the sky in one spot. Huh. Yeah, yeah. Which makes it that much stranger. Yeah. Yeah. So totally. if it's set
3: motionless, you know, the example I think of that would be, you know, how the moon always faces us. Yes. It's the same surface. So it would mean that the rotation I'm not saying this is the only answer, but it it's one thing that it could be implying mm-hmm. that um if it didn't move in the sky, then maybe the surface of the earth would But see, I also wonder if that would be correct because that would also mean a whole half of the planet wasn't like undergoing photosynthesis and things like that. Right. Um, uh, hmm, interesting.
0: <laughs> yes. And and this is this is the thing. I mean, there there it asks some interesting questions and it suggests some answers, but it's hard to tell if those answers are are everything. You know what I mean? Like it, it this is saying I think people need to yeah. look more into because there's mm-hmm. some really interesting things here that that shouldn't yeah. just be ignored. But at the same time, yeah, trying to figure out how all this fits together. Um, the the other idea was the uh, polar uh, connection where the Earth and the Sun, polar configuration it's called. So the Earth and the Sun would share the same pole, mm-hmm. basically, mm-hmm. and Earth would sort of be hanging below it. Right. I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. But again, that means the Southern Hemisphere wouldn't be getting much, much uh, light. Right. And I, I don't think it's
3: saying there wasn't any, because, you know, the through the course of the year, the Sun comes up higher, I say higher and lower, just, you know, on different parts of the horizon, it moves to the left and the right of the horizon. Um, so I guess it could also be saying that, but I, that's not what I'm understanding it to say is that it's always coming up in the same place. It sounds like it's stationary, stationary yeah. in the sky. And,
0: and I know there was part, part of one of the theories I heard is that it being a, like a brown dwarf, we were much closer yeah. to it. So we, there
3: was like
2: the sky was a different color, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah.
0: It was uh was it purplish, I think? Right. I mean yeah. they're talking about emerald on here. Um but it's called like the purple dawn or something like that. Yeah. And the idea that we're in that shell of the of the star too may have provided life throughout the planet. That, yeah. yeah,
3: that makes a good point. Yeah,
0: um, but again, just like okay, so even thinking about this stuff is a lot of fun. Yes, absolutely. But imagining it is a whole nother level. It's like, could this really have happened? Like in a sci-fi novel, definitely. In reality, yeah. I don't, I don't know. But we do have to explain some of the the stuff here. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So as as oh. far as immov- uh, immovably fixed, he says the Egyptian Ra is not the only supposed sun god. Said to have been devoid of motion. In chapter three, we saw that the Indric Surya was Surya, which yeah. latter name belongs to the planet Saturn. We also noted that where Surya was supposed to have occupied mm-hmm. Samanin Dama, the same place of rising and setting, we did not there explain the meaning behind this term having used it only to denote that Syria could not possibly have been our present sun. What is easier to believe is that a celestial body can climb vertically up in the sky and vertically down on the same path, or that it brightens and fades while remaining in the same spot. In Uh, view of what we have now disclosed, does not the latter seem preferable? In fact, we can state it as unequivocally, since it is unambiguously written in that Syria stands firmly. He does not do so on a safe resting place. The belief in Surya's immobility was so ingrained that he continued to be remembered as the immovable center of his system. So how can Indologists continue to perpetuate the disinformation that Surya is the sun? Uh, Even Brahma, we are told, does not rise and set. He remains alone in the center. And if there are those who think this immobility may have been applied to planetary deities, but not necessarily to the planets that they once personified, they are mistaken. I can't read that name. S-T-H-I-R-A-H, for instance, is yet one more Sanskrit name for the planet Saturn. No deity is involved here, and yet we find that this name is arguably related to or derived from STHIRA which means firm steady immovable still motionless and immovably fixed Fix, mm-hmm. fixed um so similarly in china where one of the ancient names of the planet saturn is zengzeng i think uh which means the stable star St- oh. uh, star but also planet um and this uh, i lost a little of it there Um, No planetary deities enter this equation. It is pure astronomical assertion deduced from the very meaning of the planet's name. Uh, It says uh, Lynn Rose deduced that the bizarre astronomical system of uh, Phileos, Pythagorean philosopher from southern Italy, was merely a garbled version of the primeval Saturnian system. This, needless to say, led him to the conclusion that the central fire of which spoke, I- Philolaos spoke spoke, was really an allusion to the old Saturnian sun. Uh, he says, historians of philosophy are fond of referring to the dark sayings of Heraclitus. If Heraclitus was at times reflecting back to conditions during the age of Cronos, perhaps we are now in a position to understand some of the mysterious remarks. The central fire is always at the same location in the sky as viewed from one spot. This may be why Heraclitus asks how anyone can hide from that which never sets. Um, mm-hmm. Rose continues, even some fragments, although their authenticity has been questioned, make more sense now. We're also told that the central fire is ruler and teacher of all things. It is God. One ever-existing, stable, unmoving, itself like to itself different from the rest and that it remains one forever in the same position and condition i mean a lot of
2: that sounds you know uh, i mean obviously i can see the way that he's coming from but if you take it from like a mystical symbolic perspective they could also be talking about sort of you know non-dualistic consciousness you know what i'm saying like they might not be talking about the sun itself they might be talking about like uh you know because the idea of fire and again i'm just playing devil's advocate mm-hmm. no the idea of like fire or divine fire um uh, divine light noor or tej, uh is you know being the thing that is sort of like the primordial uh center and fount of everything um is you know a mystical sufi and vedantic uh way of thinking about things um i don't know I, again it depends on the context like i think yeah it could be you know and again there's that whole thing of like oh they were in the old days they were just talking sim- symbolically or they didn't know any better and i don't mean that i mean it's like in the way that you know magicians or occultists you know We'll talk symbolically about uh, something because it represents it in a way that is more accurate than, you know, uh, um, verbose words. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So I don't know. That's the one thing that 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 came to mind when I was I heard all that.
0: Well, his mm-hmm. one of the things he talks about is how all of these gods are equated with parent or with planets. Right. Yes, that's then that is. yeah, You're right. And how so these, in the case of Surya. Yeah. Yeah. And so he, he goes through and says, you know, like, they're all literally meant to be these planets. But then, you know, when it gets to right. Saturn, they're like, well, right. they, they didn't mean it literally. And it's like, they meant it literally right, on right. all the other planets, but not Saturn, because yeah. this doesn't match our data. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I, I keep kind of going back to, like, you know, when you have different data points. And so, you know, between this and the Electric Universe theory, it's like, maybe they're pointing at the same thing, but both of them don't quite have the answer. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of where my brain, I, I, I go back and forth between that and then just trying to think of like, okay, if it's still in the sky or it rose in the other place, then the earth's you know rotation had to change. What would that do? Right. Um, but, you know, we also talk a lot about uh, what's under the ice caps and things like that. I mean, Obviously, uh, water is covering things that it did not at one point in time, and vice versa.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I, I made the note here that he makes the argument that we're in a rotation around Saturn, much as the moon is around us, and that Saturn was ever present in the northern sky. He shows ancient comments that refer to such a thing and how those comments change over time as Saturn seems to move from its prominence. So that was that was just me summing up some of it instead of doing like a ton more quotes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um he doesn't believe that. He thinks we're actually in we're in a polar alignment, which I have a harder time believing, like the the moon type of thing, like what you said Saxon makes more sense to me. Yeah. Um although our north pole could have still been po- pointed at Saturn as we rotated around it. I mean, if you look at like I think it's Uranus has uh, is tipped on its side. Where where it's essentially like rolling around yeah uh in the huh. le- in a later section of the same work, seven planets are allotted to the seven chieftains. the guardianship of the great one in the middle of the sky that is the pole star was assigned to the planet Saturn. Huh. it is okay, not- so that does sound like a polar mm. alignment yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, it is not that we have little faith in the planetary identification of the deities we have been parading before the reader, but even so, let it be noted that in the above we are not dealing with planetary deities but with actual planets and stars nor need we rely on this indirect evidence because the ancient persians or iranians were very positive when it came to the place occupied by the planet in question according to then kevin kevin yeah i guess it's kevin evan uh which oh, yeah yeah kevan okay uh yeah. which as we have already yeah, come on sun could be named kevin no no i thought that was great i was like <laughs> uh, uh, yeah sun's oh. named kevin which, as we have seen, was one of the names of the planet Saturn, occupied the polar center. For that reason, much like the Israelite high priests and the Hawaiian soothsayers, like the Hindus, the Greeks, and the Scandinavians, the ancient Iranians also faced north for divination purposes. It's true. Yeah. Interesting. That's the thing. It's, and, and he footnotes everything. So it's not yeah. like he's just throwing stuff out there without sources either. I mean, how right. how accurate those sources are, of course, that's another question. But it does seem like there's substance to this.
3: Yeah, it does. Um, I, I mean, it, it would be foolish to disregard it, you know, because uh, he's obviously put a lot together. So it's worth like having the question of like, you know, uh, was Saturn our son? And did we move around? It's okay to think about that and process right. it.
0: And even if Saturn wasn't, it, you know, I've heard, you know, uh, Legends talk about Saturn being our second sun, Mm -hmm. which means it may have just been a like a proto sun in the sky, perhaps Mm -hmm. that didn't, uh, you know, that that we weren't in another system. That Saturn was just brighter at one point. He talks about, and I don't know if I have it clipped here, but he talks about Saturn within historical time being bright enough to be seen in the moon's, uh, like in its, uh, what's what's it called between the surface and where it's very bright above it, Um, halo
3: okay there
0: we go you know like so you could see saturn in the moon's halo it was that bright yeah and it's it's he shows it's called at other points in more recent history the the nighttime sun Mm. Mm. so like the part about saturn being much brighter and different in the past i have far less of a problem believing sure yeah right all right let's take a quick break we'll be right back yeah okay (laughs)
2: Oh, <laughs> my dog. My dog was like, yep, it's time. He's got some serious thoughts about this.
0: <laughs> all right, quick mid-show break here. Some contact info as well as a recommendation. com is where you can find everything Where Did The Road Go related. Uh, all the social media links, contact addresses, everything. If you want to send it a story of something that's happened to you for a listener's story show that's the place to do it. Uh, you, you can message me right off the website if you want in the little pop-up. Uh, better yet, you can email stories at wherdottheroadgo.com. Uh, like I said, everything's there. Facebook page, a Facebook group, Discord, everything uh, is linked up there. And you can listen to all the shows all the way back to the beginning uh, in 2013. So, um, Also, if you want to become a patron, that is the best way to help out the show and keep us going. It's only $3 a month. You get extra stuff every single week, and um, the show's a week early. Also, every year I, I do kind of a special archive thing for patrons, which I took until February to do this year, but I finally got that up. So that's, that's uh, yeah, a lot of stuff. Anyway, if you like uh, heavy music, metal, goth, industrial, stuff like that, you can check out my music show, thelastexit.org. Uh, It's The Last Exit for the Lost, the name of the show. That was the website, obviously. And uh, it's a weekly show I've been doing forever. And it features uh, underground music, new and old, that you're not going to hear everywhere else. So, you know, Spotify playlists and stuff are great, but a lot of the stuff I'm playing isn't on Spotify. And we have live bands and all kinds of stuff. There's tons of stuff you can go through there. All right, for a recommendation... I'm going to go with another movie. This is a movie I kind of half forgot about, and I absolutely love this movie. It's called The King of California, and it came out in 2007, and it stars Michael Douglas and Evan Rachel Wood. It's sort of an indie movie, um, and the, the IMDb, IMDB entry is pretty simple. An unstable dad who, after getting out of a mental institution, tries to convince his daughter that there's Spanish gold buried somewhere under suburbia. It's a really fun movie. It's quirky, and, uh, yeah, I really loved it. And uh, just recently thought I should probably rewatch it. I haven't done it yet, but uh, it's what made me think of the, the idea of putting this in as a recommendation because it is really, really good. All right, back to the show. So I'm here with Saxon and uh, Christopher Ernst, and uh, we're talking about the book God Star by uh, Duardu Cardona who uh, unfortunately passed away, so we can't see if he would come on and talk about it with us, but it, uh, it's the idea that Saturn was a much different uh, thing in ancient texts than it is currently. Uh, he continues at one point here that to the Chinese, the planet Saturn, once occupied the North Polar Center, is actually well known. As Jan Sammer indicated, according to the Han historian Suma Xian, the planet Saturn corresponds to the center Saturn was placed at a, at the pole And the entire stellar sphere was said to revolve around it. So that's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Yeah. Um, He also talks a lot about um, Hamlet's Mill, the book, which Graham Hancock initially introduced me to that I've never read. Uh, But I think Graham was the first one I heard talking about this. And uh, they they were the anthropologists. I think they were anthropologists um, who wrote this book about how you saw the same information about the procession of the equinoxes and all these ancient myths. Right. Yep. Um, so they are uh, prime among those who have researched the subject, but have objected to a literal interpretation of what these ancient verses portray. They had no option but to accept, as far as the ancients were concerned, Saturn had once resided in the place now occupied by the pole star. This is puzzling at first, they state. What has Saturn, the far out planet, to do with the pole, they ask? They even admit that the reader is not the first to be perplexed by an imagery which allows for the presence of planets at the pole. And then comes the objection. It is not in the line of modern astronomy to establish any link connecting the planets with Polaris or with any star, indeed, out of reach of the members of the zodiacal system. So how do they explain the ancient belief in Saturn's former polar placement? Their answer is that such figures of speech were essential part of technical idiom of archaic astrology. Nowhere, however, do they tell us what it was that gave rise to these figures of speech. Nowhere do they tell us why such figures of speech were thought to be uh, essential. Nowhere Mm. do they tell us why these figures of speech should incorporate what to them is the astronomical falsity of a north polar placement for Saturn. What then would such figures of speech have been incorporated throughout the entire world? Would all the ancient races have chosen the same figures of speech? Would they have all decided to place Saturn in a locality it never occupied? Would they all have chosen the North Celestial Pole as its locality? What purpose would it have served? Fair Um, points. Yeah. And that's the thing. The book is full of really good points. And it's like, wow, like this is as interesting as I thought it would be. Mm -hmm. Um, despite the fact that in his Saturnian scenario, Lynn Rose opted for an earth phase locked with Saturn to account for the latter's apparent immobility. As Saxon mentioned, even he had to admit that as far as the ancients were concerned, Saturn's stated celestial station was that of the North celestial pole. So how then did he get around the mytho historical records, obvious message, taking a different and more plausible tack than Hamlet's mill did He offered the following. The traditions about an immovable Saturn on top of some special pole made little sense after the age of Cronus had come to an end. Those traditions were later revived and were attributed to the only immovable point, that which could be found in the newer sky. To the people in the northern hemisphere, it was the north celestial pole. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as long as Saturn was atop its pole, the age of Cronus endured. The immobility of this body, that was a sign of stability Mm -hmm. and cosmic order, Later, the stability of the North Star was seen as an indication that the world or the world age had not yet come to an end. The age of Cronus had ended only when the immobile body in the sky had left its position on top of the axis of the world. Uh, that was the main reason that the later ancients looked to the North Star. It was now the body that uh, lay atop the axis of the world, and as for as long as it remained there, the world was stable there was a transfer from Saturn to the North Star with much attendant garbling. The traditions that emphasize the North, and especially those traditions that associate Saturn with the North, need to be interpreted very carefully. After Saturn left us, or we left Saturn, there was only one fixed point in the sky, the celestial pole of rotation. Much that has been said about Saturn would, in the absence of Saturn— have been transferred to the only thing in the new sky that displayed the sort of stability that Saturn had once displayed. So that's not this guy's idea. This is other, this other guy, Rose, that, that believes we were in a phase-locked rotation. Okay, yeah. and may be accurate. I mean, that's not that far-fetched. But again, it's, it's one of those things where every culture would have had to have the same uh, same idea. So then he, he starts talking about this polar alignment. And uh, so if we were locked into a polar alignment with Saturn, mm-hmm. uh, he's, he's saying how, you know, like like with the moon, the moon moves around and there's a bulge on the earth that moves around with it and it moves tides and stuff like that. So if we were right. f- locked with just the North Pole facing this body this, this, that's big enough to, you know, really produce a gravitational pull on us, he says uh, that. Uh, oh, I didn't put this part down, but he's basically talking about there's a bulge at the at, at the upper part of the planet. Hmm. There is a northern bulge. It's not huge, but depending on how long ago this was, it may or may not have, uh, you know, started to you know, go back down. Right, right. And that there's a lot more land masses on the top part of the planet than there are on the bottom. So I'm curious if
3: the moon was in play at this point in this version of things. Or if it came in somewhere along the way.
0: Yeah, and I think that changes right. depending on the theory. Okay, okay. Um, I did not put a chapter on... 243. Yeah, so um, I'm trying to find the bulge thing, because that I thought was really interesting. That
2: is. That is. I didn't know about... I mean, I'd be curious to see the source for that. I'll have to look.
0: Um, yeah, let's see. Yeah, he say, he says here in, in the chapter, Testing the Model, I make no apologies for the fact that the theory presented in this work is constructed on the basis of mytho-historical record rather than through astrophysical considerations. I can only say that, in passing, that other than its mythological content, as we have seen, the mytho-historical record also incorporates the worldwide astronomical beliefs of our ancient forefathers, and these beliefs coincide with their mytho-religious convictions ancient astronomical beliefs are therefore here being considered together with mythology as a unified system, regardless of the fact that what is thus coming to light tends to describe a solar system that was entirely alien to the one we now inhabit, Mm -hmm. which is fair. And again, if that's the case, I mean, that's, that's really interesting.
3: Yeah. I'd like to go and look at like, if you could find, uh, Cultures that potentially preserved what the entire solar system would have looked like, right? You know, uh, during this, or or some way to kind of cross validate it. Because I I keep going back to like, yeah, you know, um, like stone structures in uh, Europe that are lined up with different stars and things like that that have been around for. Not for 12,000 years, but, you know, some of them are uh, in that 7,000 to 5,000 range, I think. Um, so it's just, I don't know, very curious, like, what you could find that's out there. And, of course, what we even notice if it wasn't lined up with something now.
0: True, true. And and it might also be that the reason that these sort of mirrors of heaven were created was to say, this is what it looks like now. hmm mm-hmm. um, hmm Okay, so... Part of what he says here is, in presenting our evidence that Saturn was fixed permanently in one spot, we relied solely on the record itself. But here a disconcerting item reared its ugly head in that various ancient texts described the Egyptian Ra as rising and setting. The record therefore demands that this apparent contradiction be resolved. In studying the original texts in which these statements are contained, we came to the realization that the rising and settings of Ra are due to mistranslation. The mythological texts in question say nothing about rising or setting Ra. What they do describe is the coming forth and going in of Ra. That mythologists believing Ra to have been the sun understood these terms as rising and setting is, of course, understandable. But in view of Ra's lack of solar characteristics, and in view of Ra's identification as an immobile luminary, the terms in question are here understood to refer to the shining and dimming of the Saturnian sun, a cycle which will be explored in a future volume. Um, In its its turn, this immobility demands an explanation. From a physical point of view, two mechanisms are possible. The first and simplest explanation is of an Earth that was phase-locked with Saturn so that they, very much like the Moon in relation to the Earth, our globe would have presented the same hemisphere towards Saturn in its orbit around it. The second, more unbelievable explanation is that of an Earth suspended directly beneath Saturn in which the latter would have appeared immobile in Earth's north celestial pole. This then demands that the mytho-historical record should be able to let us ascertain which of these two possibilities, if any, Fits best what the ancients themselves described what witnessed in the sky. As unbelievable as the polar placement of Saturn appears to be, it was found to be this explanation which fits the information contained in the mytho-historical record. In fact, the texts state it quite unequivocally. We can see, therefore, that so far the mytho-historical record meets the demands itself that it itself raises. That each demand that is met raises more demands. And these demands are also met. It is a snowballing effect that has to be followed and will be followed to the end, no matter how big our snowball grows. Um, So here's the bulge part. It says, our theory also raises geophysical demands. For instance, we all know how terrestrial tides are raised, at least to an extent. They are caused by the attraction of the sun and moon in the Earth's oceanic waters. We know that when the sun and moon apply their combined attractive force while being at right angles to one another, the tides are somewhat low. The tides become much higher when the Sun and Moon apply their combined attractive forces when in direct line with one another. Now consider with the mass of Saturn in proximity to Earth, the tides would have been raised uh, should have exceeded those at present. more than that, with Saturn having been positioned in Earth's north celestial sphere, terrestrial tides should have accumulated at Earth's north polar region. The hydrosphere moreover, would not have been only terrestrial would not have been the only terrestrial element to respond to Saturn's attractive force. The atmosphere should also have piled up at Earth's northern areas, and so, also, should have Earth's crust. This, then, is what the Saturn thesis uh, demands. Do we find it so? Well, let us be fair now. What was no longer is so that we cannot take a trip up north and see if the water in the world is actually piled up in a tide around the North Pole. Earth's crust, however, is a different matter. Earth's hydrosphere and atmosphere would have easily rebounded to settle into a more uniform shell around the world once the linear link with Saturn was broken. Earth's crust, on the other hand, would have taken a much longer period to readjust to the new conditions. And since the scenario we have been positing is theorized to have played its drama just prior to the rise of civilization, we should expect this northern lithospheric bulge to have not entirely subsided. Do we find any evidence of it? Of course we do, and it has been known since 1958. This might come as a surprise to some, because we have been taught taught since childhood that Earth is an imperfect sphere, which is slightly flattened at the poles and distended at the equator. But the orbits of the first artificial satellites, launched in 1957 and 1958, surprised everyone by showing that Earth's polar flattening is less than had previously been believed. More than that, the aberrations in the orbit of Vanguard 1 around Earth in 1958 led NASA to the disclosure that Earth is actually pear-shaped, with its bulge positioned at the North Pole. Strangely Hmm. enough, back in 1500, Christopher Columbus had actually suggested as much. Other satellites since Vanguard 1 have confirmed this discovery. The real shape of Earth, as now deduced, is better described as a triaxial spheroid rather than an oblate one, and as Desmond King Heal, who uh, conducted a study of the phenomenon, had to admit, no one has satisfactorily explained why the stem of the pear is at the north rather than the south. To be sure, King Helle offered the suggestion that the alternate melting and solidifying of the south polar ice down through the ages may have had some influence. How this melting and solidifying of ice would have resulted in a northern lithospheric bulge however, has never, to my knowledge, been demonstrated. Um, The phenomenon poses a question, which, though obvious, is virtually never asked. What pulled Earth out of shape from above its North Pole?
2: Hmm. I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, neither did I. He says, now it's true that the Earth's bulge has been measured at only 10 meters, although others have vouched for as much as 18 meters. This might not be considered much of a bulge, but as a residue or remnant of a former greater uplift of land, Even meters are significant. Um, As Hall indicated, the small dimensions of this shift indicate the pole was short-term, as in centuries to millennia rather than eons. Furthermore, the effect is relaxing, and in geological terms, the distorting influence must have been remarkably recent. Um, Leroy Ellenberger, an avowed antagonist of the Saturn thesis, found fault with this theoretical base. As he advised me, any tidal bulge that would have been raised, would not have had time to relax since the disruption of the Saturnian system. Fred Hall cites the 18-meter polar bulge in Earth's figure, he continued, but any polar Saturn would have induced a bulge which today would be measured in kilometers. But, if I may ask, how does Ellenberger know this? How does he know how far Saturn was from Earth in order to deduce the height of the Earth's tidal bulge under its influence? Uh, how does he know how long this tidal bulge would have existed? How does he know when Saturnian configuration disrupted? I, for one, have never as much hinted at those parameters, and without knowing any of these quantities, nothing can be said concerning the height of the original bulge or to what extent it would have been relaxed by now. Um, exponents of the continental drift theory look at the configuration of Earth's landmasses and conclude that the continents, must once have been joined together, I look at them in the same configuration and see something else. I do not by this deny continental drift and plate tectonics, but consider two of the biggest continents on Earth, and India also, taper toward the South Pole. None taper toward the North. The highest percentage of Earth's landmasses, as noted above, occurs uh, north of the equator. The highest percentage of Earth's ocean is south of the equator. In the extreme North, the continents come together at the top of the world to form a circle which is filled with the Arctic Ocean. As if to counterbalance this, in the extreme south, we see that the oceans come together at the bottom of the world to form a circle which is filled with the Antarctic continent. Mm. Earth's axis passes through the center of the Arctic Ocean to the center of Antarctica. Is this merely fortuitous? Is it by chance that Earth land masses are mainly congregated in the north? As to whether or not the Arctic Ocean existed during the era of Saturn's proximity, I will leave that to a future work. Yeah, despite this being 500 pages, there's four books dealing with this stuff, and they're all huge. I wonder
2: if that's geologically, like, I wonder what a geologist would have to say about that.
0: Yeah, I I don't know. <clears throat> you know, and like I said, he his sightings here. I mean, on each page, there's like one, two, three, four, five, something like you oh, know, sure. five, five yeah, to yeah. ten cited uh, scientific papers and books. So he's not he's not just throwing stuff out, but this. This one really I found very interesting. Um, So he says there's another problem to consider. Encircling the Arctic Ocean um, is a blanket of detritus known as muck. This area is so vast it actually covers one-seventh of Earth's landmass. This muck is composed of deep frozen goo with silt, sand, pebbles, and boulders, often with the masses of preserved semi-decayed or fully decayed vegetable or animal matter. This frozen mess lies on low-level plains. As one astute writer in Pursuit noted, unless it was caused by some cosmic forces we have not yet detected, it would appear to be a subaerial deposit derived from massive erosion on higher ground with steeper slopes. However, its depths in some places and over enormous areas has always caused even the most open-minded geologists to boggle. The Russians, who own the major areas covered by this substance, have conducted prolonged studies on it for over half a century, and have some places drilled down to over 4,000 feet, but still without reaching solid rock. Although we will have much more to say about the formation of this muck in a future work, the problem we wish to focus on is this. From what heights did this material erode? As the writer in Pursuit pointed out, the lands now blanketed with this material must have once or at one time been much higher above sea level. But, to suggest that the uplands from which this stuff came were much higher and had a steeper runoff is begging the question and doesn't help at all. Yet there is the bloody muck lying all over the lot and to enormous depths. It must be accounted for. One additional fact to consider is that no such muck exists at Earth's South Pole. <laughs> Huh. So that's basically saying that this muck exists in the northern hemisphere. And, he, and his suggestion, of course, is that when we were released from Saturn's gravitational grip, everything just kind of like settled down. Right.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I was I was trying to put that together. I'm glad you articulated that because I'm sitting here I'm like, OK, so the implication is this is something tied to Saturn being there.
0: Huh? Yeah. And pulling all the water to the to, to the top of the planet.
3: Yeah,
0: huh. Um, The one last thing we have time for here, he says, he tries, um, which was more me summarizing something I said, he tries to show that all creation myths start with celestial water and darkness before creation, and speculates that this water was literally in the sky and a part of Saturn, and if it wasn't water, it was something that gave the impression of water. But over and over, he shows that every creation myth starts with darkness and suggests that Saturn. May have been obscured originally by something where its light couldn't shine through.
3: Huh. So, like the firmament or the water,
0: like yeah. there was some
3: kind of shimmer in the sky. Yeah. That is wild.
0: Yeah, no kidding. I've never
3: thought about that. I mean, you could have some kind of cloud of something, it could be something like, uh, you know, the aurora borealis being constant always.
0: Mm hmm. Uh, mm hmm. You know, I don't even know. Huh. So, interesting. And the timing here is perfect because we're almost out of time, and that, that was the last note I took. Okay. Like I said, I'm a there little you go. I'm a little over halfway through the book, but I felt like there was enough here that was going to take up a whole show and I was exactly right.
3: <laughs> I feel like you've done this before.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, uh, so I use keep, Google Keep for my notes, and uh yeah. when I when I got to the point where Keep said this note is too long, you can't add anything more, I'm like, Oh, that's probably worth a show then. <laughs> <laughs> but uh the book like i said the book is fascinating like you and you don't have to believe it to at least play around with it as a thought experiment mm-hmm.
2: oh no yeah and it's interesting because it does you know it 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 definitely bleeds into some other theories too which are interesting like the you know the saturn cube cult and yeah. uh, uh, The I, I had heard somewhere that idea of the sort of Purple, that purple haze, purple dawn, uh, yeah, the purple dawn thing too. Yeah, it might have been from this. Yeah, it's really cool.
0: Uh, Yeah. If we Google purple dawn, I wonder what comes up. Probably a band, right? Gotta be. But I'm pretty sure that's what it was. Yep, musical band. Ah, nice. Okay, what is the purple dawn? Oh, it's also a, a 1923 American silent romantic drama film. Okay, what is the purple dawn of creation? Based on radical cosmology theories and ideas expressed in the books The Saturn Death Cult and Cosmos in Collision, the purple dawn of creation explores and introduces the reader to the fascinating semi-nocturnal world of life on Earth 40,000 years ago, according to the witness of ancient worlds of mythology. Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, it sounds like they're, to me, that little bit suggests that they're, they're saying um, things were dark. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it says life at this time was primitive, dark, and dangerous, a world incubating in the purple cocoon of Saturn's primordial radiance, Earth's original host star. On this hu- world, humankind struggled for survival and faced their greatest challenge, the apex predator t- today called Neanderthals. Oh,
2: so they're, they're, that's, I don't know, that's, uh, I feel like it's making kind of a leap in terms of saying what Neanderthals are, but I'd be curious to hear what the uh, the the basis for that, if there is some, you know, evidence. Yeah.
0: Am I, this was well, a, this is a short, book. it's weird book details. It's only 113 pages. Reading age 11 to 18 years. So, and I'm so like, funny
3: what? enough, you mentioned <laughs> that. Uh, sorry, I apologize talking over you. I've just been reading them versus us, and it's a uh, the author is not an anthropologist, but it takes all of these disparate uh, studies on Neanderthals and looks at them uh, from the perspective of them being an apex predator.
2: Hmm. Oh, really? OK.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's
2: wild. It's wild. I'm wrong. Uh,
3: it's it's worth checking out just for the fun of it uh, at the least. But, you know, his there, there's interesting like details and, and evidence that when you look at it a different way, you could say like, huh, what if we instead of looking at these uh, as anthropomorphized, like, you know, cousins and brothers and sisters to us as something else? And uh, you end up with something that looks like a scary troll that ate human beings <laughs> these were the real orcs basically yeah the The uh, initial sort of hypothesis of this is why uh, homo sapiens sapiens stayed out of Europe for so long it's because there were super strong uh, orcs or trolls living there that would eat you <laughs> All right well, and, and kidnap yeah. the women and those kinds of things too so yeah. it's intense
0: huh. alright well um, Chris where can people find you
2: uh, you can go to bright rectangle.com to find me.
3: Um, yeah, that'll give you a link to anywhere.
0: And, uh, Saxon, AKA super inframan.
3: Yeah. You know, uh, I'm around Instagram and I hang around the discord too. I always kind of keep an eye on it so you can find me around there.
0: All right. And the book we were talking about for anyone who missed it was called God Star from Duardu Cardona. And, uh, I de- I definitely am enjoying the hell out of it, and we will have another part when I finish the rest of the book. And like I said, there, there's four more, there's three more books that are equally as deep That's and crazy. big. So <laughs> we'll see yeah. how consistent his ideas are. There, there, they are definitely interesting to me. Yeah, whether yeah. he's right or not, like just some of the the questions he brings up, these are questions that do need to have better answers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, thanks guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. All right, I want to give a special shout-out right here to all of my Patreons. It is because of you that this show is possible. I want to give a special shout-out to those of you pledging $10 or more. Greg Ross, Billuminati, Madeleine J., Matt in Delaware, Allison Cook, Super Inframan, 36 Dingo, Andrew Nichols, Matthew Sproul, Midnight Review Presents, Christine, a blue second-gen MR2 drifting around a Japanese mountain, Patricia Gaya Quinta, Alex Whitcomb, American Rambler, Andrew Maines, Andrew Malone, Ann Witowski, Barbara Fisher, Beverly Williamson, Big Boy Limina, Bright Rectangle, Charles Davis, Charles in Florida, Land of the Crazy and Communicable, CJ, Craig Parmenter, Daniel, Diane B., MTK, Eric Citron, Eric Todd, History and Coffee, J, J. Otto Bullet. Jack Huntington, James Lindsay, Jim and Sophie, John Mattingly, John Bracken, John Hooling, Carla Mahoney, Kevin, Kevin Shrek, Cool Kitty, Kristen L., Laser Printer Jam, Lauren McClain, Linda, Lynn Jackson K, M J M.J. Armstrong, Mark Brady, Mr. Weird, Ole Andre Olar, Paul Jeffries, Perry Peters, Philosopher of Mirrors, Riker and Stark, Ron Dupre, Sam Sharon, Schmooples, a Devourer of Mortal Souls, Stacy Sherwood, Stevie Norman, Strange Stories with the Seeker and Skeptic Podcast, Tactical Therapist, Taylor Bell, The Esoteric Book Club Podcast, Thunderboy, Tyler Glimstead, Veroche Kaye, Victoria, Vincent Trewell, Will Gebhard, Will Powell, Wren Collier, Annabelle Smith, Caroline Walker, T.D.T. Skunkworks, Colin Karras, and Craig Sagastumi. Thank you all so very, very much for your support. So obviously, this show was done a little differently with me uh, going over this book, God Star, which as of this airing, I haven't read any more of because I haven't been able to concentrate enough to read uh, very much, unfortunately, but I do plan on doing a part two when I get done with the book, unless the rest of the book is nonsense. I really would be surprised if that's the case, though, because... Uh, yeah, there's a lot of data in this book, and I'm fairly convinced from reading it, at least for the moment, that uh, Saturn definitely may have occupied a different uh, space in our sky at one point in uh, prehistory. Maybe even in a, looked very different in early recorded history. It's uh, it's fascinating. It's fascinating to think about, and uh, who knows if we'll ever know anything more about it. Um, you know, you never know what texts. Might uh, be uncovered one day that will let us see, you know, tell us the story of some of this stuff, or maybe we'll invent something that'll let us see into the past. That could be uh, troublesome, or, or awesome, or probably both equally. All right, there is a Patreon segment with this, um, and uh, that'll be up for patrons. If you want to become a patron, it's only $3 a month. It helps us out greatly. So uh, yeah, join at the, join at the beginning of the month, because you get charged again at the end of the month. So uh, wait till after the first to join, Um, you know, join in the early part. That way you don't get charged twice right in a row. Anyway, uh, thank you for everyone who is a patron. And like I said, you'll have a Patreon segment uh, with uh, the three of us not talking about Godstar very soon. Okay. To take you out. I am going for, uh, this is a guy named Dave Peckett. And he used to have a band called Sick Hoos. And that's how I met him. Sick Hoos are more of a mm, sort of a heavy punk band maybe. They only did three songs. They were catchy as hell, and they don't seem to exist anywhere. And uh, he had a solo record as well, which I didn't like as much as Sick Hoose, but this song that I'm about to play for you I think is fantastic. And he doesn't seem to exist anymore. I, I tried to track down something so I could point people to this if they like it. Uh, I do have the whole record somewhere, but I only have this song, which was the song I really liked off of it, on my computer, and I went, yeah, I'm going to put this at the end. Uh, this is the kind of stuff we do on The Last Exit for The Lost, where I have this really cool stuff that is not up anywhere, is not on Spotify, it's not on Apple Music, it's not on YouTube. Um, and that's a lot of the stuff we focus on. So this is an example, but this isn't metal. Um, more singer-songwriter-ish uh, with a little bit of uh, um, something. I don't know. It's, it's good. It's really good. It's a song called Runaway which I don't know. You might be able to find somewhere is called quietly in the background. And it's Dave P E C K E T T. I couldn't find anything when I Googled it literally got no results. So that was weird. Um, 2008, it came out. There you go. Dave Peckett run away. I'll see you next time.